CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome, neighbors, to the Bitter Southerner podcast from Georgia Public Broadcasting and the magazine I edit, The Bitter Southerner. I'm your host, Chuck Reese, and this is the second episode of our second season. And our lesson today begins with the blues. Specifically, the music of Bessie Smith, who was born in 1894 in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He's a deep-sea diver with a stroke that came. That song, called Empty Bed Blues, was recorded in 1928. So, you know, if you thought nobody sang about sex on the radio until Prince, well, now you've learned something. But that song by Bessie Smith should remind us of something much more important than the carnal pleasures of life. It reminds us of a truth that we should honor, which is this. In the Jim Crow days of the American South, Music was one of a very few activities that allowed our African-American brothers and sisters the chance to feel freedom. Bessie's genre, the blues, was her people's music. And the music that came the following morning in the church, gospel, was theirs too. the drink houses and juke joints that were reserved for them they could let loose on a saturday night drink a little maybe even wind up doing a little of that good thing and on sunday mornings in the churches reserved for them they could sing songs of praise to a god powerful enough to dissolve all the shackles of their life in america Up above my head, I hear music in the air. Up above my head. And that was the late great sister Rosetta Tharp, who was born in 1915 in Cotton Plant, Arkansas. And I really do believe, really do believe, enjoy it somewhere. All in my room. Bessie Smith and Sister Tharp, who were respectively the mothers of blues and gospel, are in many ways the mothers of all of America's music, because every American musical form, from jazz to country to rock and roll, can trace its roots to the blues and gospel music of African Americans. In this episode, we pay tribute to that music, and we'll teach you just how wrong you are if you believe that music is archaic at best or dead at worst. The blues is dead? Oh, hell no. Later in this episode, you're going to hear from a fellow named Tim Duffy who, with his wife Denise, 25 years ago, founded a nonprofit called the Music Maker Relief Foundation to ensure that the blues and gospel and other old-time music would live on. The night I first met Tim Duffy, he told me that the blues could never die because the blues is a spirit. To explain that spirit, I want to first reference a song that you've probably heard. The late Muddy Waters performing Willie Dixon's classic number, I'm Your Hoochie Coochie Man. Now listen closely to this one verse. I got a black cat bone. 
I got a mojo too. I got the John the Conqueror. I'm gonna mess with you. I'm gonna make you girls lead me by my hand. Then the world I know. So, you just heard Mississippi Muddy Waters tell you that he's got a couple of things he's going to use to mess with you. A black cat bone and a John the Conqueror root. Most people, when they first learn that song, hear that second one as something like Johnny Conqueror, and they maybe think Muddy is referring to a man by that name. And that's what I thought back in 1977 when I first saw Muddy perform. But Muddy wasn't singing about a man. He was singing about the root of a plant, specifically a John the Conqueror root. Now, some people say it John the Conqueror. Some people say it John the Conqueror. Either way, that's what it refers to. That root represents a folk tale that was spread among slaves about a man named High John the Conqueror. John was, folks say, a slave whose spirit could not be broken. He was, they say, a trickster who could always pull the wool over his master's eyes. Now, why did the slaves need a man like John? Well, we're going to turn to the great Zora Neale Hurston who was as great a folklorist as she was a novelist. This is a portion of what Ms. Hurston wrote about High John, and it's read by GPB's LaRaven Taylor. High John the Conqueror was a man in full and had come to live and work on the plantations, and all of the slave folks knew him in the flesh. The sign of his man was a laugh, and his singing symbol was a drum. It was an inside thing to live by. It was sure to be heard when and where the work was hardest and the lot the most cruel. It helped the slaves endure. They knew that something better was coming, so they laughed in the face of things and sang, I'm so glad trouble don't last always. And the white people who heard them were struck dumb that they could laugh. Old Massa couldn't know, of course, but High John the Conqueror was there walking his plantation like a natural man. Now, Tim Duffy believes the spirit of High John is what led him all over the South for more than 25 years as he searched out the people who made this music and the ones who are keeping it alive today. Now, I went to visit Tim at his foundation's office in Hillsboro, North Carolina, and the next day we loaded up and drove east to a little town called Farmville to see four women who make the Sunday morning version of our nation's native music. Now that sound lifting you up belongs to the glorifying Vines sisters. Alice Vines, Audrey Vines, Maddie Vines Harper, and Dorothy Vines Daniels. Dorothy describes the Vine Sisters' music this way. I would say we sing the hard rock gospel. <laughs> the hard rock you know gospel. Come on. We sang it right hard and we won't tear it all to pieces. In a song we don't want to leave out no, no kind of words or no kind of feelings. It's just a good, nice, good time. I call on the Lord, I know you come. Can I get one witness? Can I get one witness? Now, as I sat among the sisters that day, just swallowed up in their joyful noise, I learned that Dorothy had suffered a stroke right after they got back from performing in Europe the year before. And they had been working for a while to help Dorothy relearn her parts in their song. And that very day, in the song you're hearing right now, Dorothy hit that lead line 
perfectly for the very first time since her stroke. Her sisters call it a miracle. Their world got a whole lot wider after their brother, Freeman Vines, met Tim Duffy. I could not do what uh, Tim over there do. I couldn't do it. But it, it has to be in you to do these things, in your heart. Now, Tim and Denise Duffy are the kind of people I refer to as Southerners by choice. By birth, they're both Connecticut Yankees, born and raised in New Haven. But Tim always had a deep passion for music, and when he was in his teens, he started sitting in on the Mississippi folklorist Bill Ferris's classes on the blues at Yale University. And when Tim's passion turned into college studies, it took him across the ocean. He enrolled in Friends World College, which is now part of Long Island University, but it was founded by a group of Quakers who believed that students should be in the parts of the world they wanted to study. And that led Tim to Mombasa, Kenya, where he was studying ethno-linguistics, a field that focuses on the communication between a culture and how its people talk. You know, I was living in a very insular um, Muslim neighborhood in Mombasa, and uh, I was just found my place. I was going to be a Kenyan. But then Tim's father back in Connecticut passed away. So Tim came home to New Haven with several months of work remaining on his degree, and that's when he began dating Denise, who worked in the apparel business. And when Tim returned to Mombasa to finish his degree, Denise went with him. We went and lived on a rooftop in Mombasa for seven months while he finished up all his, his research to do, you know, his senior thesis, so. Wow, and then then we came home. Did you move back as soon as you finished your degree? So we, yeah, we, yeah. we had, didn't have any more money. Yeah. <laughs> we had to go home. Yeah. So, you know, we had, so, and at that point, it was like, okay, now what do we want to do? Neither one of us wanted to be in New Haven. Tim had loved the music in North Carolina. He wasn't really sure what was next for him. And I said, you know, you have all these connections in North Carolina, and I think I can get work there. Let's go to North Carolina. After they got settled, Tim eventually enrolled at the University of North Carolina to study folklore. And that's where he first heard about a mysterious musician named Guitar Gabriel. And he began a month-long search to find him. He was young. He was 68, but an old 68. Lived by his wits since he was probably four years old, you know. And... Um, but he is a master of words, and um, he's one of these guys who just talked. And when he got talking, he would go for days, and everything was pure poetry. It's like meeting Homer or something. Once Tim met Gabe, the wheels of the Music Maker Relief Foundation began turning in his head. Gabe had fallen on hard times, but he still continued to perform at unlicensed drink houses in black neighborhoods. He was living in, a, in, in the worst project. His wife was suffering from deep alcoholism. Um, he had got beaten up the year before I met him. Coming back from a gig, some gangsters beat him with a two by four and broke his femur and his legs up. And some really nice social worker in town, I got to meet her, got him on SSI. So he had a little check of like $450 a month. Now, Tim was a blues player himself, and he was obsessed with picking up the different blues styles of guitar playing that had sprung up over the decades around the South. So when Gabe and Tim began playing music together, they started traveling around doing a few small gigs and selling cassette tapes of their song. And here's a little bit of them performing in 1992 in Tim and Denise's kitchen. After a couple of years of performing together, suddenly 
Guitar Gabe and Tim Duffy found themselves on the stages of places like Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall, big venues in Europe. And those big venue gigs put Tim within contact of big players in the music business. See, meeting Gabe and and all these other elderly musicians had helped him see that there was so much talent out there among artists who weren't ever given the chance to be financially successful. Here's Denise Duffy. The record companies, you know, these artists are not attractive to them because, you know, they're too old to climb in a van and hump the road 28 nights a month sleeping on people's couches. And so the whole, you know, the industry is just not functioning for them. The Duffies wanted to change that. And they got some help from a fellow named Mark Levinson. Levinson is held in high reverence by audio nerds who have $12,000 to drop on a turntable. Like, if you buy a new Lexus automobile today, your top-tier audio option is a system designed by Mark Levinson. But when the Duffies met him in 1994, he planted the idea of the Music Maker Relief Foundation in their heads. He was the one that said, you know, you, you, we can try and get, you know, we're going to try and get these guys real record contracts, real gigs, but in the meantime, everyone's starving. You know, why don't you start a nonprofit that can help buy people's shoes and, and pay the light bill until you can get them enough gigs to keep them going. From there, the Duffies were able to get more support from wealthy donors. But their biggest breakthrough came not from one particular wealthy donor, but from a tobacco company, from Winston Cigarettes, which is the company that gave Guitar Gabriel's hometown its name, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Winston tastes good like a cigarette shoe. Turns out that the Winston brand had bought a 20-page ad in the upcoming 30th anniversary edition of Rolling Stone magazine, and they needed content to fill those 20 pages. And it turned out that someone who worked at the local ad agency that handled the Winston account was also volunteering at the Music Maker Relief Foundation. This guy who works at the agency is like, oh, I, I volunteer for this little nonprofit. Yeah. Did you see these pictures? And whips out the pictures Tim um, had taken yeah. for our newsletter. And they're like, these fabulous photos are amazing. Wh- who are these artists? And he'd start telling them the stories yeah. of these artists. And they're like, yes, this is going to be the ad campaign. And so I think that that campaign... Yeah was actually the first time that I ever heard yeah. of the music. And, and right. It was the most imprints of any blues photos in the history of the world history because it was a $20 million. Well, yeah, so they first they do this Rolling Stone issue. Yeah. And they just decide they're going to be these, you know, big photos with, you know, a cool line about like it, each artist. I play so much guitar, make your ass hurt. Right. If it ain't been in the pawn shop, it ain't the blues. It can't know? play the blues. Ah. It's like great at, and, and a lot of them were quotes from the artists. They're all quotes you know, from, from the artists. Yeah. And then they just put this teeny Winston logo at the bottom. It was, you know, it was beautifully done. And so they do the first ad set series of ads, and people are like, this is great. We're now going to put 25% of our ad budget on this Music Maker campaign. So, and, and, and 25% that's 25% of the Winston, of the Winston, which at the time... Winston was number two at the time. The right, Winston, right. Yeah. yeah, and they're spending $50 million a year on ads. Right. So it's $12 million they're going to spend on... Publicizing um, public, And they decide, well, what are we going to talk about in these ads? They're like, we want to go to, you know, um, you know, 50 major monthlies and 125 weeklies in all the country. How are we going to engage with people? And they said, you know what? We're going to do, um, why don't we do a tour? Because then that gives us an excuse to go into all the major markets and, and engage with our customers. Yeah. And we're like, we think that's a fabulous so idea. So Taj came down. And, and so we, we called, we're like, we need Taj Mahal. Yeah, I heard, I said, we need Taj. Because Taj, <laughs> I, mean, I, I met all these rock stars. Taj is, 
my hero he's since a, a kid. Cool guy. Yeah, and he's a really nice man. And I called Todd. And he knows how to play with all these artists. Yeah, and he said he had no problem with as long as the, it was height of the tobacco wars. And we're like, if this brings money to the guys, we don't give a fuck. Yeah, because we were like, oh, is this immoral to take tobacco money? Yeah. And so we go and talk to the artists, and they're like, immoral? What? Like, we've been making our, we're these North Carolina, these Carolina, um, African Americans from Carolinas, they're like, we've made our living off tobacco our they whole lives. Like, why wouldn't we take their money? They've grown the tobacco, they've rolled the tobacco, they picked the tobacco. Exactly, everything. They've been everything. making their money off tobacco yeah. forever. Yeah. Yeah, and this was gonna be this is gonna be fun. It was gonna, you know, they were so, making and yeah. we had these amazing images and these amazing stories and the talent. So, you know, Tim calls Taj and we put together this tour of Taj going out with Cootie Stark and Neil Patman, uh, Beverly Watkins, John B. Holman, and every show we would put on these incredible, we did 42 cities, yeah. we'd put on these incredible four to six hour marathon shows of blues and people, it was fabulous. And, and the guys, I split all this money with the guys. So like, they were making I took money. guys from... They're making five four. grand a weekend and staying in four star hotels. They're yeah, I was making it. guys, like guys that were destitute $80,000 a year. Yeah, it was it was a big deal. Now, over 25 years, Music Maker has extended that hand to more than 400 musicians. It has recorded more than 7,000 performances, commercially released about 2,500 songs. The number of grants it's extended to musicians now tops 12,000. Now, Music Maker, believe it or not, does all this work with an annual operating budget of only about a million dollars. But they've learned how to stretch that money to keep music and history alive for generations. We support the torchbearers so they can then take the torch and pass it on to the next generation. Because otherwise, if nobody does that, every time one of these artists die, the, the treasure trove of cultural knowledge that right. they have dies with them. If they've not been recorded, if we don't have their, their oral history, if we don't have their picture, every time one of these guys dies, they're gone. And that is the voice of one of the torchbearers, Precious Bryant of Waverly Hall, Georgia. She died in 2013 when she was 71 years old, but before her death, Precious saw her career flourish thanks to the Music Maker Foundation. They gave her a monthly stipend for prescription medicine, for food, for utility bills, and in addition, they produced Precious's album and helped her book and travel to shows across the U.S. and abroad. And to top it off, they even hooked her up with two guitars. But she had started playing way back when she was nine years old. See, my uncle had, they had some what you call a family guitar. It was a great old big one and I couldn't have told it. I used to just drag it around and I kept on till I learned how to play it. My uncle bought me a little old ukulele. Along that time, they said Santa Claus coming to you. I started with that. In many ways, the blues was Precious's way of communicating. My baby don't stand no cheating. One of the folks Precious passed the torch to is a musician named Jake Xerxes Fussell. It's the same old man living at the mill. The mill turns around of its own free will. One hand in the hopper, the other in a sack. The lady step forwards as the gents fall back. Jake was born in Columbus, Georgia, and lives today in Durham, North Carolina. But he studied at Precious Bryant's feet when he was young. It's okay if music is mediated or whatever, and that's the way that you learn stuff, but learning things directly is a whole other ball game. I never had any kind of real formal teacher who would like sit me down and say, this is the way you pick this out. Precious never served that function for me or anything. <laughs> she, it was more like she would play and I'd sit there and try to keep up, you know. But in the bigger picture, like, how did that affect my music? I don't know. It's like, uh, that's the reason I play music. Tim and Denise Duffy and their crew at Music Makers always make connections like that to ensure that when someone is ready to pass the torch, 
there's another one to receive it. And their foundation in many ways has become a life support system for America's native music. Tim told me that Guitar Gabriel, who passed away in 1996, taught him how to live inside the spirit of that music. Like Gabe told me, that blues will never die. It's a spirit. It's not a, it's a, you can't kill culture. He told me, like, when the, the slaves were here, they took the drums away from them. They tried to do everything systematically to destroy them, and it still goes on. I call on the Lord, I know you come. Alice Vines of the Glorifying Vine Sisters told me that she believes Tim helps artists like her and her sisters because that's his calling. It has to be in you to do these things. In your heart. And just like you, you know, to come out this far from Georgia, it had to be in your heart. God had to give you, had to give favor from Tim, then Tim had that favor with us. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Oh, you wouldn't have come. Right. And see, people don't know what favor means. You have the favor of God, but you don't know how to use it. Favor is faith. <laughs> what is faith? Believe it. Right. You got to believe in what you do. And I know you come. Come to my rescue. Oh, anywhere, any place, any time. Our thanks go out to Tim and Denise Duffy, the Glorifying Vine Sisters, and a whole host of other people who are part of the Music Maker Relief Foundation family. No doubt the foundation will keep finding such amazing artists and they'll follow the nose of Tim Duffy as they move into their second quarter century. I've come to believe, as I've gotten to know Tim, that he really does carry the spirit of old High John the Conqueror inside him because he holds up people who have been oppressed because of their skin color or where they live up in the light, reminding us that the joke is always on the oppressor. We'll be back to the blues after this break. I'm Chuck Reese. This is the Bitter Southerner podcast from GPB and the Bitter Southerner magazine. Now, if you want a provable data point that the blues will never die, one thing to look at is how it spans so many generations. And we'll prove it in this next segment where we visit two blues men, Bobby Rush, Louisiana native who is 86, and John Tavius Willis of Greenville, Georgia, who's only 23 years old. Here's John Tavius playing for me a rendition of Walkin' Blues. I woke up in the morning out feeling around for my shoes. Well, you know about that, I had them old walkin' blues. I woke up in the morning feeling around for my shoes. Well, you Y'all see how that blues torch is passed down? Walking Blues was first performed by Robert Johnson of Mississippi in 1936. It was adapted by Muddy Waters in 1941, and now John Tavius Willis has his own spin. I first met John Tavius in April of 2019 at the Word of South Festival in Tallahassee, Florida. He came to perform on our Bitter Southerner stage at that festival, and I was blown away because he just seamlessly channels the early blues greats, and he writes new blues songs for his own generation. I had the great good fortune to get a performance from him at Georgia Public Broadcasting's Atlanta studio, and he says the blues to him, reminds him a lot of the gospel music he grew up with as a kid. I always went to church as a young kid, and we were, it wasn't contemporary church, it was old Southern black Baptist church. So much of the tempo, much of the timing, much of the uh, phrasing, the vocal phrasing was the same. So oh, yeah. when I heard blues, it was easy to translate over. 
don't know if you could answer this next question exactly. I could try. But it, it'd be, I'd be interested to know, like, is there one song from the Baptist Church that sticks with you, like, of all the things that you sang and played growing up in that church? Mm, yeah. What? Yeah, I'll give you one. Oh, you give me one. Yeah. Yay. Uh, I play it a little different, but it's the vocals. So in, in, in blues and in gospel music, the music is secondary. Right. But the, it's the message. So this is one of my grandmother and great-grandmother and grandfather's son. long and teaches journey. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so like a lot of folks then, you grew up with the church music and graduated into something that was, had a lot in common with it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that yeah. was the blues. Yeah, for sure. And like, where did the blues start coming in on top of you in addition to the church music? Uh, probably around the age of 14. By 12, I was studying the blues. I started, I always been uh, aware of different genres of music from country music, reggae, you know, all, just all the way around. And uh, when I heard blues, I understood that it was something that was like a parallel to gospel. Cause like gospel and uh, blues gave birth to like all of American music, everything in yeah. America. But people don't know that like everything comes from those two and jazz also. And, um, so I was about 12 when I first started studying it. My dad always played different um, records and stuff around the house. Oh, yeah? Um, like who? Oh, Hank Williams, Tracy Chapman, Bob Marley, <laughs> Earth, Wind, and Fire. It was a cry. It was a every, everything, everything. everything. Um, so I was uh, getting in touch with it that way. He heard Muddy Waters, and mm -hmm. through Muddy Waters, he, he uh, kind of made the link go off in my mind, like the connection between the two. I'm, it's so interesting that you say that because, like, out of all the, you know, the genuinely old blues greats, he's the only one I ever got to see. Oh, really? Live, yeah. yeah. Uh, most people, when they think about the blues, mm. they know the names Robert Johnson, they know Muddy Waters, but they kind of think like it's an old art form, you know? And then everybody, every now and then, somebody like you comes along who reminds them that it ain't dead a bit, yeah. that it's a living thing. Like, you know, Tim Duffy, who founded the Music Makers Relief Foundation, he said something to me, like, you know, he started that whole foundation after he went on this search to find this guitar player that very few people had heard of, but was allegedly like a wizard mm -hmm. named Guitar Gabriel mm -hmm. in North Carolina. You've heard him. Yeah, heard of him. Yeah. Well, when Tim found him, he said, Gabe told me that the blues is a spirit. 
it never dies. How, how do you feel that spirit? Um, I started looking at the history of blues and specifically in Georgia. So a lot of people look over Georgia um, impact on blues, but the reason that a lot of people don't talk about it is because a lot of the blues musicians from Georgia had already passed before the rediscovery. So uh, in the 20s, it was a big boom of uh, Georgia blues musician. Columbia Records recorded his first black blues musician in Atlanta, a guy named Peg Led Howe. And then um, and it's like a guy from Latonia named Barbecue Bob. Right. And uh, Statesboro, the whole Statesboro blues that the Almond Brother got from Taj Mahal, where Taj Mahal got from Blind Willie McTell, who Tell. was from Statesboro. Statesboro. Um, then you have... Um, uh, you got Ma Rainey down in Columbus, Georgia, who is the author of C.C. Ryder, who went on to be an entrepreneur. Like, there's so many people in Georgia that did so many things for blues. But if we, I, when I was looking it up and I was finding out, uh, so I'm, I was born in LaGrange, Georgia, which yeah. is Troop County. And the Troop County, I went to school in Hogansville, Georgia. And I found out in Hogansville, Georgia, there was a reverend there by the name of J.M. Gates. He was the first commercial rec uh, reverend to record on record and recorded countless uh, numbers of sides, you know. And he um, told a, a guy named Thomas Dorsey, who was originally a blues piano player from Villa Rica, Georgia, mm -hmm. who went on to be the father of black gospel music, who wrote the song, Precious, Precious Lord, Lord, Take, take my, my Hand. So there we go. And so once I started figuring all this stuff out, and my grandmama and granddaddy know about these people, and I heard about these people, I'm like, so it's that deep. But we, we normally get it washed over a lot with the Mississippi guys and Chicago guys, but it's a wonderful, rich history right here. You know, and that's so interesting because you know, when you really dive into the different ways blues comes out in the South, there are many distinct styles. Oh, for sure. You no, know, they're, they're like Carolina Piedmont blues is different from Southwest Georgia blues, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. which is different from Delta blues in Mississippi, yeah, which yeah. is different from the hill country blues farther north in Mississippi. That's, that's true. So um, this is uh, what they call a ragtime, is emulating the ragtime piano on the guitar. So okay. down the street the other day and I heard a gang of musicians they were playing real good it was a gang of them now and one of them had a trombone and I'm gonna tell you how that trombone sounded to me he did something like this like this. Oh, he was playing that banjo. <laughs> and there's an old lady in the corner working out a piano tune. And she played something like this. Oh, working at piano. <laughs> That's all. find that in Georgia. Then you go to Barbecue Bob in North Georgia and he'll be playing with well, Latonia. He'll be playing a, a lowdown thing in Open G or you'll go to Lovejoy, Georgia and find Kokomo Arna playing Slider. So once I found it, I was like, whoa. So on this new, on your latest record, which is your second, mm -hmm, correct? Mm -hmm. Tell everybody what it's called. Spectacular Class by Mr. Dontavious Willis. There you go. Mm -hmm. Spectacular Class for everybody who's interested, was produced at a studio in Franklin, Tennessee, mm -hmm. by Keb Moe, mm -hmm. who was one of those young people 25 or 30 years ago yep. who reminded everybody, no, this ain't dead at all. Yep. And it's a beautiful sounding record, and it's right. great, and, and you wrote every single every song on single it. Every single song. The first song on that record is, is called The Blues Is Dead mm -hmm. with a question mark. And we both know the answer to that is a no, it ain't. Mm -hmm. the, the blues won't never die. 
Now, it might not never be like it was in the 60s or the 20s, but you can't, it's more genres of music now, but it won't ever die. Won't you want to play die. that song for us? I got you. People think new blues songs don't get written very often. Well, they, uh, yeah, well, that's uh, yeah, that's the thing. Cause a lot of people they um, cause it's so many. It's, it's saturated with blues songs. Cause we're talking about songs that've been written since the 1920s. It's not just reaching back to the 80s. So you got what 90 plus years of song that's already out there. Part of almost yeah. the, Amer the the American song. Yeah, for now. sure. That's that's I'll go all the way back. But a lot of people have a bad. Uh, you know, like I said, the history, knowing the history is the, is the best part about it. Because if you go back, you can find gems. But a lot of people do the same songs. Yeah. Um, like Sweet Home Chicago, you know, all those songs. Nothing Hoochie, wrong with those songs not at all. Hoochie Coochie Man, but, things like that. But having yeah. your own song, too. And now, I perform other people's songs. I know you do. There. And the reason I do that, because those people can no longer perform. And I try to shed light on who they were as people, because when they were here, nobody cared anything about them. Right. You know, most most of the blues Bar artists. Barbecue Bob yeah. didn't have giant crowds yeah. oh, falling no, around. No, yeah. not at all. Now people would buy records from yeah, all yeah, yeah. over, but uh, you know they they were seen as like you know less than human. So it's up to me and the people that's playing the music to give the credit where it's due, and especially Georgia folks. Like I'm all for I'm all I'm for, for all the blues musicians, but I, I scream for my. Um, Georgia blues musicians, because I know a lot of their children. I know a lot of people that was in the community, and 
folks that knew them. Well, ain't many other people screaming, so oh, it's good you're out there. Gotta man. scream loud. Yeah. Thanks, John Tavy. No Tavis. problem at all. This was great, man. Thank you. Thanks so, so much. much. Thank you. Our thanks to John Tavius Willis. You can actually watch his performances at our studio on our website. And now, let's visit John Tavius Willis's elder by 61 years, Mr. Bobby Rush. Somebody ask me where I've been. Around the world, I'm going again. Somebody ask me what's my name. That's the song Hey Hey Bobby Rush by Grammy Award winner Bobby Rush. It's off his 2019 album, Sitting on Top of the Blues. At age 86, Bobby Rush has produced about 400 records, and he still performs about 200 shows a year. We talked to him ahead of a performance in Macon, Georgia. I am a free man. I've been locked up and bound because of the color of my skin, but I'm the freest man you ever saw in your life. Because I love me, love what I'm doing, I love who I am, don't try to be nobody else. What you see is what you get. And my plan is now, at this point in my life, do all I can, why I can. I know that will come a time I can't, but I won't regret what I did not do. Bobby says that regardless of people's backgrounds, the blues can unify. What you black, white, or what have you. Music the only thing that I know that links people together. If you, if, you, if you got a good beat, you like what you're doing, and you can prove that you do what you do and you do it well, you don't have to like me. Say, damn, I don't like it, but damn, you good. And, and it's, it, it reaches it's reached to the core, man. And really, that's how the blues keeps living on. Because it addresses those elemental feelings that all humans have. And it does it in ways that allow anyone to hear the music as part of their own story. I love some Muddy Water, love some B.B. King. I love some uh, Sonny Boy Williamson. I like a lot of things about Prince and the Michael Jackson, the newer kind of stuff. When you put them all together, I got a piece of all of that and put it in my craw. And I put it in a bowl and stir it up. You get a Bobby Roy soup. Bobby says some things about the blues can be taught, but not everything. You can teach a man how to play a guitar, drum, any instrument. You can teach him how to do it. But you can't teach a man how to do what I do, what Elvis Preston did, or Ray Charles did. You gotta be born to do that. I'm born to do this. Bobby Rush was born to do it, and it's been evident for decades. To end this episode, I want to circle back to the Glorifying Vine Sisters in Farmville, North Carolina. As I sat in that little church where Alice is the pastor, talking with her and her sisters, we began to talk about freedom, about strength, and about where we find solace in rough times. Listen to Alice. I, I got my own mind. I live my own life. I tend to my own business. So, you know, I don't let people's influence me. If I don't want to do something, hey, I ain't going to do it. You know, I'm not a weak woman. I'm a strong woman. Well, there, there, there's, I think there's some people who have let religion split them off from people. Mm-hmm. And that don't, that never felt right to me. You know, it's like because, you know, I don't care what faith you are. You listen to this. One right. You can you, listen. You know. You can listen more to a song like, you know, like say, like Mason Grace. You can be going through a lot of trials and tribulation. One of them old hymns will come up. It'll make you cry. It'll make you forget about all them things you done been through. But, you know, and that's what brought us here. You know, that's what brought us into this world, them old hymns, you know. Amazing Grace. That was one of the things I had in common with the Vine Sisters. I grew up with that song just like they did. Not everybody knows the story of that song. Amazing Grace was written in 1779 by a man named John Newton. Newton's profession, slave trader. On his ship, the Greyhound, 
He hauled human cargo from West Africa to North America. But 31 years before he wrote that song, the Greyhound took its last voyage with Newton at the helm. For two weeks, Newton and his crew fought vicious storms that carried the ship northward and vastly off course. Newton took the storms as a message from God that his trade was not godly, not in the least. And years later, he wrote Amazing Grace, his testament that he had been blind, but had learned to see. After Alice Vines brought up that song to me, she invited me to sing it with her sisters. Now, my singing voice ain't what it used to be, but that ain't the point. Was grace that taught my heart to fear. The point is that I had the opportunity to share a piece of history and a piece of my heart with these four women. Our pigmentation didn't matter. Our geography didn't matter. We were just people singing together and remembering that sometimes in life, inexplicable grace is all we have to lean on. And that's it for us today. I want to thank the Glorifying Vine Sisters. In fact, I want to glorify the Glorifying Vine Sisters. And I hope all y'all will take a few moments to send good vibes toward Dorothy and Maddie, who are now both struggling with health problems. We thank John Tavius Willis and Jake Xerxes Fussell. They've both got new albums out this year. John Tavius's latest is called Spectacular Class. And Jake's is called Out of Sight. Please give them a listen. You'll be glad you did. Thanks to Grant Blankenship of GPB for his great interview with Bobby Rush. And finally, thanks to Tim and Denise Duffy, along with Aaron Greenhood, Jed Finley, and Cornelius Lewis at the Music Maker Relief Foundation. Their work is critical to the preservation and ongoing health of Southern culture, and they deserve your support. Our producer is Sean Powers. Josephine Bennett edits the show. Ever South, our theme song was written by Patterson Hood and performed by the band The Drive-By Truckers. Now, if you like the Bitter Southerner podcast, please review it and rate it on Apple Podcasts, even if you listen to it somewhere else. That'll help us make sure that more folks find out about it. The Bitter Southerner podcast is a co-production of Georgia Public Broadcasting and the Bitter Southerner magazine. You can access more from each episode at gpb.org slash podcasts. I'm Chuck Reese, and my three instructions remain constant. Hug more necks, abide no hatred, and spend your time doing what you love with who you love. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.